you are listening to Demise of the Podcast with Patrick Attaway, my podcast where I discuss writing specifically today, my own writing as we dive back into the Charles Price novella. And I am recording this the day after Christmas, so two days after I recorded the first episode because I have the day off, and on my day off a lot of times I like to do another podcast for those of you who love to listen to me. And I don't really have a whole lot to say before we get into the actual reading and discussion of the novella today. Just note that there was a trigger warning on the last episode, and that trigger warning still applies to this episode. So don't go into this having not listened to the first episode. That's all I got to say. Beyond that, if you would like to support the podcast, you may do so by buying my books on Amazon. I have many of them that are 99 cents for your Kindle. If you don't have the Kindle, you can download the Kindle app. Just search for Patrick Attaway on Amazon. You can also support the podcast by listening to my music. Just search for Lurking Val wherever you stream music. It can be on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, etc. Are we done with that? Okay. I have been reflecting on the podcast itself today, and I looked at other quote-unquote literary podcasts today. And a lot of them are, are on YouTube because they have a video element to their podcast, which I think is stupid because the whole point of a podcast is that it's for an iPod or an iPhone and you listen to it. It's supposed to be like a radio show. It's not supposed to be like a talk show where you watch it. But uh, I don't see any other podcast with quote-unquote literary authors that are garnering much interest or support. Uh, the one I looked at today, the most listens that they had or views on one of their podcasts today was a little over 400, and I think that was because of the author. And the author himself does not have a wide audience. What he has is a Twitter following, and those people came because they like him on Twitter. They don't come there because they like his, his writing. <laughs> so... Uh, I, I think that I'm, try, I'm trying to differentiate myself from that crowd. I don't like being... I, I don't even think I'm part of that crowd, but I don't like associating with that crowd. I don't like writing Twitter. I flirted with it in 2019 and then realized it was all stupid. And since 2020, I've just been making fun of it. And people still follow me. And they think I'm part of this hashtag writing community. And then they're surprised when I make fun of it, you know. I remember, you know, I used to do a lot of troll polls on Twitter. And I used to do a lot where I'd make fun of poetry. And one of the reasons why I do it is because I love it when someone feels so self-righteous and they try calling me out on something. And they're like, why are you slamming poetry? And then I say, look at my bio. And... Then they see that I write poetry. So if I'm making fun of anyone, I'm making fun of myself. And it's come to my attention via my wife that that's not in vogue anymore. Self-deprecation is icky, which I think is funny. That My whole personality is self-deprecation. What am I supposed to do now? Find a new personality? That sounds like bullshit. Anyway, I'm in my living room. I'm not in my office reading this, so the, the sound might be a little bit different. I'm right in front of the microphone, as always, with my headphones on. But, you know, it's always possible that we hear one of my obnoxious neighbors in the background. 
but let's get into the novella. Now that my father's in the ground, I have no time to reflect thanks to all the strangers roaming my home. Wearing black and gray, they're mirroring one another's sorrow, however real or false. Al sits on the sofa with his pregnant wife, Pat, and talks to each person, offering their condolences. Pat insisted on holding the post-funeral reception at my house, and Al put up for the catering. I'd like to kick them all out, but I suppose it's only polite to let the people my father liked more than me to see what remains of his existence. I'm distracted by the fact that he said that Pat is pregnant, and Pat's not pregnant, so... Pat apparently has a few extra pounds on her, and Charles is just saying that she's pregnant. Um, again, it's not a continuity era. It's an era from Charles's perspective. Uh, none of them recognize me as Kenneth's, Kenneth Price's son, either. That gives me the freedom to take a bottle of Red Stripe from the fridge and my fucking Kindle. And lounge in the front study, sorry. Closing my eyes between each sip, I resign to my fate. No one will shut up long enough for me to think about the events of the past three days. Father died. I'm trying to muster some feeling about him, even hatred or happiness. The man leaves me apathetic towards his memory, because I did plenty of stewing about his indifference while in college. An elderly woman with a cane makes her way to the bookcase containing volumes of classic literature, law textbooks, and various versions of the Bible Father collected. She notices a picture of me on one of the shelves and turns to the drinking sloth nearby, trying to figure if I'm truly related to Kenneth, a man she probably remembers as passionate about law, a widower who finally got to meet his departed wife in heaven. Before I read this conversation, this brings to mind something that probably inspired this. So... My entire life, I've been part of this family that's well-known in the city, and my grandmother is a local business owner, and I, 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 it's not uncommon for me to go to a place that is unrelated to my family at all, and somehow they find out that I'm related to her. For instance, when I worked at the nursing home, and I went to go cash one of my checks at BB&T, uh, the woman, while I'm wearing my scrubs that are covered in crap, uh, the woman is asking me, oh, you worked at and she asked me if you, if I knew the administrator and she said my grandmother's name and I said, yeah, that's my grandmother and she was shocked. Everyone who knows my grandmother expects me to be money bags and another example of that is when I was at my grandmother's house now, granted, my mother's not broke. You know, my mother's always made good money, and we've she raised me, you know, very well. But we were at my grandmother's house, and my grandmother has a very big house. And my second and third grade teacher just drove by and waved at me while I was standing in the front yard with my family for some sort of thing. And she asked me about it when she saw me in class she said what were you doing over there and I'm like well that's my grandmother's house again she was shocked another example are both my my two older cousins I went to their wedding and their wedding reception and people that I knew who also happened to know them were there and they were all shocked that I was related to them 
And it's always kind of obnoxious because they think that because I don't dress a certain way or I don't present myself in a certain way that I'm not part of the family or because I don't share the last name. See, my grandmother had three sons and two daughters. So obviously I'm one of three of her grandchildren who don't share her last name. And one of them has passed away, unfortunately. So I'm one of only two grandchildren that no longer have her, her last name. So yeah. Are you Kenneth's son? She points. You can't be Al. Charles. I nod without sitting up. I'm sorry for your loss. She comes nearer. This must be very traumatic for you. Sure. Rising, I walk out of the room and up the stairs. This is my house, and I'll go to my room if I want. Who knows how much longer I can stay here. Al will probably want me to move in with him and sell this place. Pat would love that. The ever-dutiful housewife with a useless master's degree in geology. I assumed that she was barren until Al let one in past the goalie. They say it's a girl, and Pat wants to name her Allison. Fitting, to say the least. I need to open up the reference guide here to let you know that Allison was very much alive during this, and I seem to recall writing about Charles having to babysit her in this. Not an actual scene, but this is going to bother me, and of course, you're going to probably think that I'm full of shit, but it really is, it's not a continuity error, it's Charles being Charles. So, she was born in 1977. So, she was like nine years old when this took place and he just he doesn't really recognize the fact that he's an uncle and that his niece very much exists and this is all from his perspective so if he doesn't recognize her as being his niece then you know la-di-da that's from his perspective I guess that I like Al though He's listened to me when I complained about our parents in the past and was more understanding when I brushed off mother's death. He might set me up with an apartment in Cambridge until I finish law school. What will become of Nicole, though? This scenario throws more than one spoke out of my wheel. Without knocking, Al opens my bedroom door to see me with an empty beer bottle on my tape deck humming over my worn copy of A Trick of the Tale. I make a mental note that if I had one song played at my funeral, it'd be a trick of the tale. That song captures what I embody. When Phil sings, the beast that can talk more like a freak, I have this jerk in my gut as my eyes water. I'm going to get sued for that. You're not supposed to have song lyrics in your, your writing if it's published, but apparently I didn't edit that out. So Phil Collins is going to come after me. They're gone, he says. We need to talk downstairs. Sitting across from Al at the kitchen table, he passes me a document that reads Last Will and Testament. Of course, he'd bring this up right after the funeral. I don't have time to sleep on it and worry. He's going to pull his band-aid off before the adhesive has time to wear off with sweat. Yet as I read the will, I have to reread a paragraph. When I look at Al, he nods to affirm. Father not only left me the house and the Porsche, his bank accounts are totally at my disposal. I'm unsure how to react. 
Al smiles, retracting the file, and Pat raises her eyebrows with true enthusiasm. Aren't you pissed? I ask. No, Pat interjects. We knew about it, Al says. Our father was a little more self-aware than you realize, Charles. But how is that fair? I ask. I don't know you're not hurting for money, but damn. We get the Land Rover, he says. Everything else is yours. I focus on the air conditioning's ambience. The room around me becomes a box as if I'm on stage and performing for an audience. This is somehow reality. I figured father never cared, and he probably didn't, but he knew it. He knew it was wrong to treat me like I didn't matter. Somehow, it would make up for all his faults, because money means more than memories. He was right. I can't magically love him. But I sure can let go of my animosity towards father, because of this will, I'm an independent man. There's no need to go to law school or pursue a career in something I despise. Instead, I can prolong this period, my lost weekend. Spoiler alert, guys, he does end up going to law school. Pat, I say, go upstairs to Father's bedroom and find a shoebox in his closet. Fill it with whatever you want. Take the Rolexes, Mother's jewelry, the pistol, and the sock drawer, anything. Don't show me what's inside, just take it. Father might be buying me off, but Al deserves something other than a car. They had a relationship and bond that I never experienced, and Al must want a keepsake to remind him of that. When mother died, father kept everything. He withdrew from both of his sons. Al deserved something. So, Al says, what are you going to do first? Do all the things father wouldn't let me. Alright, so this portion of the episode is going to be kind of like a bonus to everyone who's a fan of Demise of the Trinity. And I'm going to read from an unreleased chapter. And I don't know if it's any good. I wrote it apparently on April 18th, 2015, and it's from Allison's perspective. And I tried writing multiple chapters from Allison's perspective. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm doing it for reference because... This isn't canon to anything, mind you. I'm not saying that this is what happened or anything, but I'm sharing it with you for perspective. And again, trigger warning, because this contains actual reference to graphic stuff, is all I can say. I don't want to spoil it before I start reading it, but if you can't handle certain things and you've made it this far, I don't know what to tell you. I'm trying to understand why I'm so fucked up. Could it be that my Uncle Charles my Uncle Charles used to molest me? Maybe when my father hurt me and mom, something happened. But I was like this before that. Because I ran away from Murray. That's probably why my dad's dead. If I'd stayed with Murray, he may have been able to save Daddy. Murray wasn't someone I could control or use, though. He could only use me. Murray probably doesn't even know the name of our daughter. I never saw him again after our last weekend together. We were together for such a short time, but I never knew I'd have to raise this little bitch on my own because I wanted someone to fuck. That's all I ever wanted. Maybe because I almost liked it when Charles touched me. What was supposed to be my junior year of high school was spent in the house where my daddy died. My mom still lives there. 
She kept working, but we had plenty to live on since Daddy's insurance policy was so huge, and Walter Groan had to pay child support for Murray. Now the checks have Murray's name on them. I dropped out of high school to take care of my daughter Veronica. Of course, I probably neg neglected and hurt her more than actually take care of either of us. After the first time I locked her in the bathroom and beat on the door to teach her for being an ungrateful cunt, I decided to spend more money on pot so I could remain calm. She was only two, but I figured she wouldn't remember. Veronica's 14, and I've only locked her in a closet or bathroom a few times since then. I happen to think that this is terribly written. Not saying that I was a bad writer in 2015, but I definitely had a, a lot to learn, especially when it came from writing from the perspective of a woman, which I don't think I was very good at at the time, and you know, I think I've grown since then, but I want to read a little bit more from another chapter that was written from her perspective in March uh, of 2016. And, you know, this is all for context of what I was building to with this quote-unquote series. I suppose hell brought out some regret in me. Psychopaths always experience the dread, despair, and disgust they never achieved in their lifetime after death. The way I used men, neglected, and abused my daughter... Murray made sure I knew all about it. But I was in flames before he appeared. Lucifer let me roast, unlike many spirits he allowed to dwell freely in the underworld. The only reason I gave Murray a second thought was through Veronica. After Al died, what little humanity I had seized up. Murray only saw a little. There's something about the price but bloodline. We lose our ability to empathize and develop needs beyond normal human consumption. Charles and Al sought their release through murder. I got mine between my legs. Pot helped curb that appetite, but I still needed it like of tension at times. That's how Veronica ended up motherless. Murray killed me when he saw how broken she was. But Murray pulled me from the flames, dousing my pain with what felt like menthol on my skin and revitalized me so I could stand on my own. He watched as I finally took in hell as a reality rather than continuous nightmare of torture. Then I looked at my hands and noticed no wrinkles or veins. Murray looked the same as when he set my apartment on fire, but I felt as if I was a teenager again. His eyes lost their harsh redness as tears washed blood down his face. It's been decades, he said, even longer since we last embraced. I happen to think that that's better written than the first chapter of Allison's that I read, but... I could probably go back and read more honestly, and I'm looking through these old chapters that I wrote back in 2015 and 2016. This was probably during like the third or fourth rewrite of the novel, and there's chapters from Monsoon's perspective, someone named Gregory. I think Gregory was a demon that I wrote about, and uh, there's a couple from Charles' perspective, and a few from Veronica that just never made it into the book because of how I rewrote it. Uh, particularly when I rewrote it in 2019. What remains of Allison in Demise of the Trinity is all from Murray's perspective. Because for one thing, Murray's a better developed character. And everything that I said in her chapters really didn't add anything to the book itself. And again, I wasn't very good at writing women at the time, I don't think. And I got better, obviously. But, you know, I... I based Allison on someone that I dated. And so a lot of what I was writing was out of malice 
So I didn't really have a place in the book in the end. And I think that one of the reasons why she's not present in the Charles Price novella may even be because of that. I mean, some sort of subconscious hatred towards someone. Again, me being... I'm, I've grown since then. And everyone has a right to be bitter about dumb shit, I guess. Anyway, let's get back into the actual Charles Price novella, shall we? Not quite centered. The next shot gets a little closer on the right. I feel someone watching me, so I look around and see Tommy Welty waving with an assault rifle in his other hand. He starts talking, but I have my ear protection on, and I return my attention to the range. I started shooting for sport when I was 16 to help relieve tension because holding something I could easily turn on myself or the shooters nearby as I fire off rounds makes me forget how this world is too real. We need more fantasy to augment the horrible reality. First of all, I think this is actually a very well written paragraph. (laughs) Again, I I worry that I don't write enough like this anymore. (laughs) It's very syrupy and... um, kind of posy as one of my old professors would say but man one of the reasons why well the reason why I wrote about Charles having experience with firearms is because it wouldn't make sense for him to you know just suddenly start shooting people without any practice in this book for one thing but also there's a history here that even goes as far as Price of the Trinity And when Murray steps in to help train Ken because they're trying to make him a murderer for the sake of Lucifer. But anyway. They teach shooting at Harvard? Tommy asks as I go to leave. I was a member of the sportsman club, I say. I'd never leave the house with one of those. Tommy rubs his rifle and grins. He's proud because it's a costly weapon that's bigger than everyone else's guns, but it's impractical in any domestic setting. My 9mm is for sport and protection. There's no need to aim with a machine like his, though. Point it in an intruder's direction and they'll paint your walls red. I might just have to use it on you if you don't call my sister. Surely you know about my father, I ask. Yeah, he says. I'm real sorry about that, but you don't seem too broke up. I'll invite you both over soon, I say. Excuse me. Before I open the door, Tommy steps in front of me and nudges me with his rifle. We partying? He asks. I just bought a new stereo with a CD player, I say. So, yeah. You're going to need something stronger than Heineken. Once again, I'm riding in the elevator to David the dealer's apartment, though I I, I didn't know Tommy knew him too. When he knocks on David's door, I flash back to that Ziegler guy who was here before. What a freak. I ran into some strange dealers in Cambridge, but no one tried so hard to intimidate me. The unwritten rule of buying is that if you don't have an attitude, the dealer doesn't give you one either. Even junkies have manners. No, David answers the door. What do you mean? Tommy asks. The two of you, he says. You're trouble. We just want to buy real quick. We need enough for a party, I say, like the one Nicole and I crashed. Tommy zips the bag into his jacket as we return to the car and I drive off to the house. Instead of trying to chat me up like he did David, he goes through my tapes in the glove compartment and pulls out Minute Works business as usual. 
He doesn't mind when Helpless Automatum plays as we pull as he puts in the cassette. Sometimes I can read. Whereas I'd rewind the album to listen from start to finish. I figured he'd either be into Buck Owens or Metallica, but we're living in an interesting period of culture where MTV exposes us to more than artists we than ever before. I'm sure Tommy saw the Land Down Under video like me and probably bought the tape on a whim without hearing any other single from the band. I'm sure there's more to Tommy than what he allows people like David to see, though I'm also certain he's not a complex intellectual. I don't point out that to besperch him, but rather to tell myself he's a person too. Tommy isn't a character in my life story that pops up and goes away in a week like so many girls I romanced in Cambridge. That doesn't mean he won't be a phase that'll pass, though. As long as Nicole and I see each other, Tommy will be in the peripheral. It's better if I pick her up on the way home so he and I don't have to share the awkward moment of being in my house alone together. I just realized that if Ken Price knew that he had a dead uncle that acted the way that Tommy did, he would be mortified. It's funny, I don't know that he's ever mentioned in Price of the Trinity, because Ken doesn't really know anything about his mother. Green hues enlighten my vision as my eyes force me to open them as if I'm pulling up a garage door. Sunlight shining through the Heineken bottles on the coffee table. They're scattered around the floor as well. Tommy's humming a Merle Haggard and Willie Nelson song in a stupor. It's probably Pancho and Lefty. Nicole resembles a snake curled in Mother's easy chair. Cocaine residue makes the hand mirror I grabbed from my parents' bathroom appear as if we recovered it from a beach. This headache reminds me of this painting some girl I fucked at Harvard had hanging over her bed. Rosie the Riveter stood over a bleeding man with a hard-on, her fist pumping in the air as he took a final breath. A railroad spike engulfed in his temple spread a a fountain of crimson from the asshole's head. When I asked her what it was all about, she shrugged her shoulders before taking me into her mouth. Women in the 80s. Uh, I don't think that painting exists, by the way. I think I just made it up. How long did this drunken drug binge last? I don't remember when I bought all of this beer, but it's more than several cases worth. Despite the many nights I forgot in Cambridge, I always wondered why I bothered having fun if it all went black by the next afternoon. But the difference is when I see Nicole stir and unfold from her pretzel position, there's a flicker in my chest. What month is it? She whimpers. I'm really not sure, I say, but I'm sure we can make it to July with some more coke. David winks at Nicole before letting us into his apartment, and thankfully he's alone. His yuppie friends put me off. Funny, I don't have the mental energy to dissect these situations anymore. I just really want more coke. Nicole and David talk while I sit on the nearest love seat with my mirrored sunglasses protecting me from the sun attacking us from all the huge windows. Father was considerate enough to buy heavy wooden blinds for the house. Anytime I'm out in the sun, I forget there's a society that operates in the daytime. They're talking drones around me like static from a broken TV, so I lean over to the reel-to-reel on the nearby table and press play. I don't care what it is. Helpless Automatum from the first Minute Work album makes me second-guess David's taste. Though I like Overkill and it's a mistake, the band never matched their debut's consistency. 
Maybe it's nostalgia for all those forgotten nights, or even the ones I remember when I had to put effort into my studies. Here again, we have something that should make you question Charles Price's perspective. Maybe he's not a reliable narrator, because here he's encountering the same song twice, and he's not given you any sort of notion as to how much time has passed since he started partying with Nicole and Tommy. So it could have been an evening, and since you know Nicole asked what month is it, it could have been a week, it could have been more. And I'm trying as the author to illustrate the mindset of these you know 20-something addicts who are going overboard and they have too much money and drugs and alcohol at their disposal. Without my inheritance, I'm sure father would make me get a job before law school, build character in me. I'd have to listen to myself think when I got home instead of drowning out my over-analytical thoughts. Not philosophical bullshit so much as questioning why I'm following the path my family set for me rather than exploring more of myself and why I feel different from them. It sounds like me. Al has what father had, a stereotypically lovely wife and an angelic daughter. His reputation as an attorney hinged on father's legacy, and no one would say he hasn't lived up to that. So, I mean, when I thought I wanted to be a lawyer, when I was lying to myself, it was something that I'd been told since I was very young, you need to grow up to be a lawyer or a doctor. And, you know, being a doctor never really interested me, so it was always lawyer, lawyer, lawyer. And so, as an English major, I wondered, what the fuck can I do with this degree? And at first, I was like, yeah, I want to teach, because I want to be able to, you know, expand my horizons in this arena. I want to follow this path of being an English major, and the best way to do that is to get a master's and eventually a PhD. Although, I don't plan on getting a PhD anytime soon. So, I never really put forward any effort into going to grad school while I was an undergrad because I figured I was going to go to law school because I thought, you know, with the acceptance rate of students into law schools that have English degrees, it's higher than pre-law students, at least at the time. So... You know, I thought I'd put my analytical skills to good use and also find a job that was lucrative. And I think that what I was really doing was just, I hadn't found myself. I didn't know what I wanted. I didn't, I I still don't necessarily know what I want. I'm in my 30s. But I do know that that was something that had been put forth toward me as one of the very few paths to success and you know I have uncles that are lawyers one of them is a judge he's been a judge for a while now but he out of everyone around me has actually discouraged me the most he said you don't want to get into this line of work you know I had another cousin who thought about going to law school and he said don't do it you won't be happy which is really saying something (laughs) so I want to forget I'm a mistake. Al's 15 years older than me, and my parents' inability to care for me as they did him, even if they tried, made me feel like the bits of clay a sculptor tries to push together after he broke the mold. How much, I ask. David looks across the room with his eyes cutting me for interrupting what slim chance he had at betting Nicole with me present. 
I know they weren't even discussing cocaine, but I'm over this. He's an asshole, and the only reason we're here is to pay him for drugs. What else is there to talk about? You haven't even told me how much you want, David says through his teeth. How much do you have, David? I stand up and begin to walk over. Ziegler sent me a new supply last night, he smirks. I never carry more than a few duffel bags worth. The more I keep, the more risk I take if the DEA shows up, which begs the question, how is it any of your fucking business? Because I want all of it, I say, and I'm willing to pay what you want. Well, he twiddles his thumbs, this is America, and when you're willing to buy the lot, I'm willing to give you an American discount. Thank you for your patriotism. Without pause, David walks over to a chair near his television and moves it to reveal a cut-out piece of flooring. A safe lies underneath. The first thing he pulls out is a loaded revolver, which is smart to keep when you're in a room with coke-crazed kids. Doesn't make me afraid of him, though. You don't need to know how to shoot if you own a 12-gauge. Point that metal stick at your target and it'll hit. With a handgun, you're not going to get on the first shot unless you aim carefully and have a steady hand. Where'd you park? David asks. I can't have you carrying all this in the street. Parking garage, I say. We'll take the elevator straight to our car. Smart. Kicking the safe shut, he bolsters the double bag over to the coffee table and pockets the gun. Hands on his hips, David nods with a knowing smile. I didn't bring enough cash to cover this because I only wanted to shut him up, and that was the coke residue in my brain talking. I don't keep a briefcase of money with me at all times. Five thousand, David says, but only if Nicole's willing to reimburse me for the discount. This fucker's not pushing buttons. He's leaning on the emergency lever. With a gun serving as a phallic lump in his pants and all the cocaine and buckhead sitting in front of us, I wouldn't shame Nicole if she let him bend her over in front of me and fuck her in the ass. Part of me believes she's willing, too. How much without the discount? She asks. I'm not selling all of this, David shakes his head. If you don't give me what I want, you're both done. Find another dealer. Anger is a powerful sobriety agent. Piss any drunken asshole off in a bar, and he'll see straight enough to knock you out. Despite that I'm technically sober, someone on a bender is never clear until their body expels all the toxins from within. At a certain point, we become what we consume. This is a lot of self-awareness for a guy who's on coke. I'd take a bullet to feel David's skin pierce in my teeth. If Nicole would oblige my bloodthirsty fantasy, David's corpse would be a tribute to our affair, and we'd fuck over his bludgeoned body. She squeezes my shoulder as if signifying something. Leaving me to ponder what she meant, Nicole looks over the cocaine as David opens his arms to her. Lust illuminates from her eyes. Pushing him on the couch, David grabs at her ass and she pulls the porcelain vase from the table behind the love seat to crash onto his face. A stupid offensive move, by any means. Porcelain isn't sturdy enough to knock anyone unconscious. Mildly annoying, maybe cut them a little, sure. 
Nicole's all but signed our death warrant, and I'm not so fucked up that I don't react, before David's able to groan and slap her away, pulling the gun on her as she whimpers on the floor, I'm hopping over the couch parallel to them. He's trying to smack her away as he reaches for the gun and Nicole bites and claws at him. I would have punched her in the temple so she wouldn't fall off and pushed all my body weight onto her torso, but he's not strategizing because she's a woman. There's still a part of him that wants to keep her pretty for when he fucks her. It's when I headbutt him and put in a put in a right hook into his throat that he finally pushes Nicole off. I yell at her to grab his gun while I get my arms under his armpits and pull him upward. Between his cursing and spitting, Nicole fumbles into his pants for the revolver, but I'm hoping she doesn't try to use it. Toss it, I manage. Wrapping my right arm under his neck, I want to make his face turn purple until his last breath is in a pleasurable lapse into oblivion. His death should be hard and painful. All the tension within me wants to kill this man more than any woman I fucked or cocaine I snorted. David's demise feels like my life's goal suddenly set before me in the most intense moment I stumbled into. Nicole should be looking away or telling me to stop. Maybe she'd even claw at me like she did to save David's life. Instead, instead, she's looking into his eyes as David gurgles to her for help. A smile so subtle like the Mona Lisa interrupts everything I assumed about her. My focus is no longer my lust for this man's life to end. I want to kill him for her. When David stops struggling and I check his temple for a pulse. I hold his once coke-snorting, whore-kissing, shit-grinning face in my arm. My mind blanks, and all the rage that begged me to murder this man sinks, despite Nicole's reassuring embrace, and she's kissing my face as if I truly saved her life. I find no more pleasure in this. I murdered someone, and I can't undo this. Did you touch anything? she asked. I'm gonna wipe down the gun and put it back in his pants. The reel-to-reel, I say. If you clean up the vase, she says, I'll wipe everything we touched. There's no fucking way we can keep this coke, I say. When Ziegler, or whoever, finds David dead in his apartment, they're going to notice all the cocaine missing. While Nicole, cleaning, while Nicole cleaned up our prints and made sure we didn't leave any traces of ourselves, I'm certain there's a way to find out who murdered this guy. There weren't cameras in the apartment building or parking deck, surprisingly, but I'm not going to take this shit to my house. I killed someone for cocaine, and even if I'm not addicted, I have a problem. That means hiding this shit is the only way I can satisfy Nicole and keep us alive. Okay, Nicole says. You're not going to dump it, are you? Because if you throw all of this away, killing David was for nothing. Listen, I don't blame you for trying to hurt him, but we can't be caught with this much coke. We'll go to jail without question. If someone other than the cops find it, bury it, Nicole says. Remember that church? What I don't remember is how this dirt road left a mess on the Porsche that I had to spray off with a hose. The place isn't as creepy in the daylight either. 
I don't hear or see anyone nearby. While I don't have a shovel, Nicole said we could pull up some boards from the floor. Hopefully the coke is safe in the duffel bags. The ground beneath the floor is barren clay, and I don't hear any rodent underneath. There's no food for them to hoard here. Nicole is sitting on the pew, looking at the crooked Jesus suffering on the cross behind the pulpit. Who came here? Why did they abandon it this way? This doesn't feel like the kind of church you walk into and suddenly feel obligated not to curse or have perverted thoughts. Maybe blacks had to build this place in the middle of Shitsville and worship in secret. I'm going to let Tommy take you home, I say. Obviously, we're not going to tell him or anyone else. I don't want to go home, Charles, she says. Let's take some of the coke and have some more fun. I know David was a son of a bitch, I say. But he was still a person. We can only erase so many memories. We have to protect ourselves, Nicole, because there's someone who cares about this cocaine. They're going to want to find it. Tommy breaks our awkward silence when we come into the house. Sitting at the kitchen table where my parents ate breakfast, he reads the back of an empty Eggo box while eating a stack of waffles, and I'm curious where he got them because I don't eat those things. He's mumbling the words and occasionally says something audible. Now that I know him better, I can't recall him from high school, though I find him to be a likable idiot. Some people can stop drinking or snorting drugs, clean themselves up, and put some effort into their rehabilitation to discover they possess intelligence. But Tommy doesn't read. At times, his speech reminds me of a ten-year-old boy trying to read aloud in class. The cocaine amplifies his obtuse personality. He doesn't care about anything but the moment he's in. And I appreciate that. Take your sister home, I say. My brother's coming over with his wife and daughter, and I have to clean up. Once again, we have a reference to the fact that <laughs> Allison Price does exist. He just slipped up and said, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? That okay, Nicole? Tommy's mouth hangs open. We're going to be in trouble for being gone so long anyway, she says. There's no goodbye kiss. I let them leave without pleasantries, and I'm not sure I should see them again. Nicole and I put our lives permanently at risk hand, and I don't want to live fearing the person I'll no doubt piss off with David's corpse. There's always someone to turn to when I need help, but I have to figure this out as an adult. Telling Al might implicate him somehow. The only way to keep a secret is to never tell anyone, because once it leaves your mouth, the person you trust is liable to break that bond. With money and drugs, cutting out your tongue is the best option. I should consider any witnesses outside the building. There wasn't anyone on the elevator in the parking deck, but someone might notice a black Porsche showing up and leaving at a certain time. Someone my age doesn't belong in Buckhead, so it's not unlikely someone would remember two young people hopping around in a fancy car. A guy like David has a reputation that anyone might associate with strangers coming and going. We could have staged a suicide or taken the body with us somehow. Instead, we left the number one piece of evidence and relied on chance. Staying in Atlanta seems like watching a boiling pot of water boil over without turning down the stove. Not only stupid, but hazardous. 
I don't want to buy a cheap used car and go across the country or fly to Mexico or Canada. Remaining within a thousand mile radius isn't going to fend any threats away. Nicole's not going to go for fling like vagabonds either. I want to do something a little bit different because I just pulled out those chapters of Demise that never made the final cut. And I've stated before that the first full chapter of Demise of the Trinity, which is from Al Price's perspective, that was kind of cut in half and rewritten for the sake of the novel. So I wanted to read the first part that was originally cut out before it gets to the part where they get to the church and everything. I began working for Central Network when Walter Grone started the company in 1989. Before Walter approached me to represent him, I had my own law practice and defended Atlanta's upper class, white-collar criminals, the ones that rarely go to prison. Every corporation needs an all-star legal team to intimidate any potential lawsuits from sweatpants wearing rednecks who claim they choked on some whole milk while driving their pickup truck down an unpaved road. But with Walter Groan, I usually resort to physical rather than verbal intimidation. Sometimes I come home with a lot more dirt and blood on my clothes than any attorney should. No one but my brother Charles knew about my exploits until Walter Groan called me and asked me to be his personal attorney. When I first met Groan, he somehow knew everything. Initially, I thought he was blackmailing me, but he instead wanted my expertise in executions to settle his legal trouble. Obviously, there's a reason why I cut this from the book. And a lot of it had to do with framing Al's character because I didn't want Al to be the psychopath that was Charles. Al just kind of fell into Charles's habits some way during, you know, the, the 90s. But, you know, when the Charles Price novella takes place, Al doesn't know anything about any murder or anything. He himself hasn't committed any crimes. He's a good husband. He's a good father. And something corrupts him along the way. And it's likely the fact that it's Charles who introduces him to Walter Groan. So, of course, once people started disappearing, Groan's troubles grew fewer. Therefore, I got to kill less and had to find my own prey. That's about the time Charles graduated law school and returned with his thirst. I don't know if it's in the price blood, but Charles started around the same time I did when he finished undergrad. I helped him when he got his first taste, though at times I fear he's gone further into darkness than me. The way he treats Nicole while idolizing Ken, his four-year-old son, and lets his anger show in, in the day worries me. I'm certain that Nicole knows that Charles leaves at night to sob bones for a few hours. But I'd never let Pat or Allison find out about how I bought our house. They think I'm a successful corporate attorney, and I am technically. There's just a lot more in the murder business. This afternoon, I'm feeling the urge. Walter hasn't called me since we had dinner two months ago. It's been so dry that I drink more lately to put it all out of my mind, so when I walk in the door with my clean suit and light briefcase, Pat greets me with a surprise. 
an unopened Crown Royal bottle and fresh ice in a frosted glass. As she kisses my neck, her hand rubbing my leg, I pour the whiskey and admire the kitchen light twinkling from the amber spirits. I got a few steaks on my way home, she whispers. Why are you buttering me up, I ask. Because your daughter has some news. We sit at the table with our steaks, broccoli, mashed potatoes, Crown Royal, and my daughter between us. She picks at the meat with her fork while avoiding eye contact. I'm well aware that she's probably sexually active. Allison is 16 and puts on an innocent act whenever we talked. Kids who never fuck up are the ones fucking behind your back. All teenagers have their series of mistakes, but if one never makes them, they're going to pull some irreversible shit like getting pregnant. Pat's assumption that she has to booze me and cook steak so I won't kill our daughter hurts because I'll never hurt Allison. I leave all my violence and anger in the field. Humans have the capacity to control their behavior, and people who let their emotions motivate all their actions are immature. If you care for someone, you show them respect even when they've gone beyond the point of no return. Allison, I clear my throat. Are you prepared for what's going to happen? Allison looks at Pat, her eyes watering, as if I had a gun to her head. I want to know if Allison realizes that I'm going to make her take care of this child. She can't undo this, and I won't let her believe that I'll raise another infant. You're pregnant, right? I ask. Yes, Daddy, Allison says. And you're ill-equipped to raise the child, aren't you? I ask. Yes, Daddy. Reaching over to her, I brush through my daughter's hair. Sixteen years didn't breeze by, but she's still a child to me. My parents would have disowned me if I got a girl pregnant at Allison's age, but they didn't care about me unless I got into trouble. I was 15 when Charles was born, so they forgot about my existence most of the time. Allison means so much to me as a person because I know what it's like for people who should care about you not giving a damn if you breathe or drown. I can't stop her from going into the water, but I can teach her how to swim back to shore. Up until this point, I say, I've spoiled you and given you everything you wanted, but I apparently didn't teach you to keep your legs shut. Al, Pat tries to mute me. I don't blame the boy, whoever he is, I say. You're not stupid trailer trash, so you knew the consequences, yet you did it anyway. I'm sorry, Daddy, Allison says. Apologies aren't necessary, I say. You're living with the punishment for the rest of your life. As I wipe my mouth and rise from the table, I notice she hasn't said who the boy is. I don't recall her dating anyone, and I left that gray area because I'm not sure if I'm ready for her to date. A part of me would rather not know, and the other part wants to make sure she's not hooking up with Charles Manson. Al, that reaches for my wrist, sit back down. When Allison says groan, I hear the flint flicker behind me. With Walter groan, my boss and confidant, the spark hits a bed of hay and it knocks around me. I didn't consider Allison sleeping with Murray, Walter's son. 
They only met twice, and I figured Murray was so repressed and strange that Allison wouldn't take interest in him. I imagined her with a boy with khaki shorts, a pink polo, hair slicked back with sunglasses, and a convertible. Murray Grone is a homeschooled hermit who possesses the social skills of a young Adolf Hitler. He spends his free time lifting weights and eating egg whites. While not an unattractive boy, I thought Allison had better or more traditional taste. Walter is going to take this as an insult. He won't blame Murray and my daughter will be the harlot that seduced his innocent boy. He'll fire me and I won't get to play with blood like I used to. Instead, I'll have my name ruined and a child to help raise. So I can't let the old fogey know. I have to put the kibosh on my daughter's relationship and just let her child grow up without a father. Excuse me, I say. The urge is growing. Allison's betrayal makes me look at her as if she isn't my daughter, but Judah's sitting at my table eating my steak and potatoes. She's the biggest problem I have now, and those usually end in bloodshed. So I lock my bedroom door, sit on my bed with the wet whiskey glass in one hand, and I dial Charles with the other. I need something to kill, and Charles is always up for practice. She fucked Walter's kid? Charles laughs. What are you going to tell him? I'm not, I say. I never want him to find out. Now, do you know of anyone we can do tonight? Al, Charles says. I haven't even eaten yet. I wasn't planning on going out. I'll buy you dinner, I say. We can play it by ear. I keep two briefcases that look nearly identical so that Pat doesn't suspect why I leave with a different one. If Walter calls with an assignment, I bring the briefcase that holds a Smith & Wesson 686, a fixed blade hunting knife, handcuffs, and pepper spray. When Charles and I work together, he has a suitcase with a variety of blades and a forty-five pistol. Subtlety is not my brother's strong suit. When I pull into Charles' driveway, he motions for me to pop the trunk for his case. Before a kill... We usually go out to Waffle House because they're everywhere and low-key. My plan for the evening is to find a prostitute and drive her to the abandoned church that we fixed up. Charles discovered it in the late 80s, and we have buried so many people on the property that I worry we'll run out of space. We better not be doing another hooker this time, Charles says. Well, if you don't have anyone lined up, I say, who the fuck do you suggest we murder? Maybe we should drop in on Walter and Murray. Don't even joke, I say. That's my livelihood. We've never done the homeless. It'd be a favor. Charles makes my stomach heave sometimes. Our parents never gave him affection as a child, so I don't think he differentiates between love and hate like most people. Instead, he looks at his victims, the innocent and guilty of Atlanta, and sees a product. They're not people with lives. Past, mothers and fathers, children, friends, or stories to tell. They're animals in his slaughterhouse to feed his need for control and power. My hope when I read these early drafts on the podcast is not to show you how much I sucked or grew as a writer, but to show you different perspectives that are possible in a work. And we've already seen Charles go back and forth on whether or not (laughs) his niece even exist, which is hilarious to me. And his perspective on things, I remember 
there were portions of the novel that obviously got cut out and rewritten where he would go on and on about drinking and drinking and drinking and cocaine and cocaine and cocaine. And a lot of this was supposed to be about the excess because it was, it's the eighties. And I was thinking in terms of each song from the album, invisible touch and tonight, 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 that is from the perspective of an addict and then land of confusion, uh, a bit more excess in the eighties and also turmoil. And then finally from that first part of that album into deep, we have this breakage between the couple but, of course, that doesn't really occur the way that it does on the album. Before I go, I want to read you from this earlier draft of what used to be called Invisible Touch and is now known as the Charles Price novella. I remember Nicole mentioning Steely Dan, who I only have a passing interest in. There's something both interesting and blasé about their sound, like they're really polished good musicians who make tongue-in-cheek songs about porn stars and aging hipsters, but it ends up sounding like adult contemporary jazz. It's like something you'd hear if you'd peeked in an old man trying to seduce a 19-year-old girl from Georgia at a ski resort, but Nicole sounded taken with them. I tried to see if any of their CDs were printed in Japan, but no such luck. Fortunately, there are several albums here, unlike with Genesis. Can't Buy a Thrill, Katie Lied, The Royal Scam, Asia, and Gaucho. I remember not liking Pretzel Logic because it sounded like Dylan, who is a decent songwriter with a terrible voice. If anything, I'll impress Nicole. The clerk returns with several boxes, which he offers to help me out to my car. I pay for everything at $4,356.23, which makes him look like he's about to cream his pants. When we're walking out to the Porsche, I ask him what albums sell the most, and he tells me it's usually Michael Jackson, Fleetwood Mac, The Eagles, and Bon Jovi, which sounds terribly bland. Leave it to Atlanta to support the worst artist. By the time I get all the equipment inside and unboxed, I realize that I have no idea how to put it all together. Jimbo didn't warn me about that. I call Nicole and ask her about it, so she says Tommy can help if I buy him some beer. He's such a prince. I end up returning with a case of Guinness and bottle of Jack Daniels, so I guess it's a stereo party. Tommy drives up with Nicole in a 85 Mustang, which seems like something he would drive, and I greet him wearing a silk kimono and black socks pulled up to my knees. Lighting one of my father's cigars, I blow smoke above their heads as they walk up the front steps. Is everything okay, Charles Price? Nicole hugs my waist and kisses my neck. How was the funeral? I just spent $10,000 on the same day, I say. It went swimmingly. Who spends that kind of money after their dad passes away, Tommy asks. Charles Price, and then she says a word that I can't repeat. <laughs> it's funny how we evolve over time. Uh, I, I have beer and whiskey, I say. Think you can put everything together first? Sure, man, Tommy goes inside without us. I brought my copy of True Stories. If you play the talking heads on my stereo, I'll eat your liver. Can I have his kidneys then? Nicole asks. Nicole pulls me into Father's library next to the stairwell and has me on the floor with her teeth digging into my neck. As we begin to make out, I hear Tommy making static noises in the other room. I didn't even think of the funeral until Nicole brought it up, which goes to show how much I cared. I was more eager to spend Father's money than remember his life or pretend to cry, which begs the question, was Al thanking and and to what end? So, yeah. This is just... 
you know, kind of self-indulgent on my part, but I was also trying to establish the relationship between Ken and Charles at this point still. And one of those points of interest between the two would be Steely Dan, because in earlier drafts of Price of the Trinity, uh, Ken Price goes on long tangents about Gaucho and in particular um, Babylon sisters. In fact, there's a sex scene in an earlier draft of Price of the Trinity between him and this girl, Amy, who ends up being totally different in the final draft. And they're interacting with the song as he drives her away from campus and they end up fucking somewhere. And yeah, it's, it's kind of a gruesome scene. Every sex scene that I write, it turns out to be some like gruesome David Lynch sort of thing. And that's kind of how I intend it to be. Each new draft of a book is sort of like a new, I don't know, timeline or dimension in this fictional universe. And it's easy as the author to get them mixed up. And I've done that. I'm, I'm definitely guilty of that. But and other times it's it's interesting to to look back and see how characters evolve and everything. And, you know, that's something that a lot of people in the audience, the people, the readers, the ones who are actually looking at the final product that don't know what go into writing the book, they don't get to experience that. I hope this was an enjoyable episode of Demise of the Podcast. It's certainly a little bit different. I've never read earlier drafts on here, at least not to my knowledge. So uh, maybe I'll do more of that in the future, but I don't know. It was really kind of a one-off treat for people who are actually into my writing. But I really appreciate you listening. I hope you have a wonderful week, a happy new year. I'll probably speak to you again before then. But if I don't, this has been Patrick Attaway with Demise of the Podcast. Happy reading, happy wife, happy life. Go to the moon, eat some cheese. Ta-da.